You're listening to It's a Long Story, a podcast from Sydney Opera House that uncovers the stories behind some of the world's biggest ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. Tina Chen doesn't remember the first time she met the Obamas, but what she does remember is the groundbreaking policies that she worked on with both Barack and Michelle during their time in the White House. The daughter of Chinese immigrants, Tina has forged a top-notch career as a lawyer, activist and advocate and has been focused on gender equity issues for over three decades while at the same time raising two kids as a single mother. After Me Too, she set up the Legal Defence Fund for the group Time's Up, which to date has raised over $24 million to support the legal cases of women who have been harassed at work. She is a powerhouse and she knows how to get things done. Chen, it's so good to have you here at It's a Long Story. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. You have had such an extraordinarily diverse career, really. Um, but I actually want to go back before you were even born to your parents. Okay. Where did they come from? So my parents, Peter and Lily Chen, uh, came from Shanghai, China. And they, you know, were born, you know, in the 20s um, and are really products of old pre-war China. What does that mean? Well, you know, they were, you know, well, one story is my mother was given away as a child um, because, uh, you know, her parents had six children. She was the fourth child, you know, of the six. And um, my grandfather's older brother had no children. And so as is customary in China, if that's the case, you know, then one sibling will give one of their children to the sibling that doesn't have any children to raise. And so my mother, you know, very young, um, was given to her uncle and grew up thinking that those were her parents. When the war started to break out, because my um, this would be my great uncle, lived out away from Shanghai, away from the city center, uh, my grandmother went out to bring my, my mother back because mm-hmm. she wanted her to be safe. She wanted her daughter back. And it was a little traumatic because my mother actually thought she was, you know, being taken from her parents. But then she was brought back and then she was raised, you know, with her siblings and her parents. And how about your father? My father was also born in Shanghai. Um, He was the second son um, of, you know, four children. You know, again, you know, the pictures that I have of them, what few they were able to, to bring out with them, you know, are really of old China, people in traditional Chinese dress. They, you know, grew up with a lot of servants. They were very much, you know, the upper class, educated class. So why did your parents leave China? Well, they left in 1949, just, you know, um, during the um, Civil War, you know, that led to, you know, the communists, you know, taking charge of the country. Um, And so they left Shanghai. They have a very dramatic, you know, um, story of getting married. My mother worked for an American company that was evacuating its employees, you know, out of Shanghai, which was in the path of the communist army. And, you know, down further south um, to Guangdong. And so they got married in the morning, left for the airport. Um, the story goes that they rode back to the to the city, was cut off, and they spent their wedding night in the airport, in the Shanghai airport, waiting to fly out. How did their families survive the revolution? Well, it was hard. You know, both my uh, sets of grandparents, you know, suffered a lot during the Cultural Revolution. My, you know, um, all of my mother's siblings, you know, who were left, they Three siblings came to the United States. Three siblings stayed behind in China. Um, you know, all, you know, had varying degrees of, you know, um, not being able to school. The cousin of mine in China, who was the closest to me in age, is one of the kids who, you know, at a very young age was taken out to the country. 
right. you know, the sort of young, you know, Red Guard, you know, revolution where they moved all a lot of the kids from the city unaccompanied mm. um, out to collectives in the countryside, you know, to, you know, farm. And he found himself, I think he went at age 13 and stayed from 13 till his 20s. And in his 20s, my parents sponsored him to come out and to Cleveland and he lives in Cleveland to this day, you know, owns a fabulously successful, you know, lighting company. <laughs> so your parents arrived in the States. Your father was a doctor, right? And he was. He'd mother... gone to medical school in China. Mm-hmm. And your mother had trained as a chemist. but She was. And she went, she went and did a, a master's degree at Syracuse University when she first got here. My father had heard he had family and friends who were in either California or New York, you know, sort of where a lot of, you know, the Chinese Americans were living. Um, both had been here for, you know, decades, you know, coming coming in the 1800s, but also the new diaspora post-war, um, and had heard about the discrimination that many of his friends were experiencing and thought, you know, I'll go somewhere where there's not a concentration. Maybe it will be better. So we went where there was no one. <laughs> he wound up settling in Ohio. I was born in Columbus, Ohio. And then we eventually um, lived in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I grew up. That's an astonishing decision, really, because you'd think that your parents would want to be surrounded by, you know, people that, that they had some kind of cultural relationship with. It, well, that's, you know, and that's what people often do, right, when, as, as immigrants. But, yeah, I mean, it also had to do with where my father was finding positions. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there was a little bit of where where could he, you know, get a um, – he was, was, was at a, um, Ohio State Medical School um, for a while – how was the household run? Was it run to sort of with the goal of assimilation? I mean, you you weren't you didn't speak Chinese at home for a start, right? Um, well, you know, this is the fifties and the sixties, mm. so yes, it was you know pretty much assimilation. Now, part of it was, um, I think, also my parents because they were from Shanghai. You know, they spoke Mandarin, which is sort of the, the national language in China, but with a very strong Shanghainese accent. So it's a little bit like speaking southern english mm-hmm. and and i think they did not feel like they could actually teach me mandarin and they didn't think it was worth me learning shanghainese i suppose i don't know why i mean i grew up you know we, what we say in shanghainese ting dong you know i could listen and understand right. you know shanghainese i've sort of lost a little bit of it now um because they always spoke it to each other mm-hmm. um and we did have like a chinese school you know so these six well, they families founded a chinese these six school, family, they? well they founded oh, a chinese camp right. but there was also a saturday morning Chinese school in in one of you know the basement of of one of the fathers of one of the the, the families which I sort of resented because I couldn't stay home and watch cartoons. Saturday morning cartoons <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so I didn't really take I did take Chinese very seriously when I went to college but um, it didn't take when I was little. school, you went straight to Harvard. I did. What did you study there? Uh, sociology. I was a sociology major. Yeah, and why did you choose that? <laughs> uh, because I was interested in government and politics, but sociology was a way to do and study that without having to be in the government department, which was quite large and at the time run by a fabulously uh, famous professor, Harvey Mansfield, mm. um, but also incredibly conservative. <laughs> so I thought... You know, and it was actually kind of tough. So I thought, you know, I'll do sociology instead, which was much more left radical and flexible. And so you were identifying as left radical at the a age of bit, 18. A little bit. <laughs> 
Because when you um, when you graduated, you know, one of the first things that you did quite seriously was 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 essentially feminist campaigning and activism. Well, it was ex- a little accidental. I mean, I actually I got married two weeks after graduating, moved oh. to Springfield. My my husband was a year ahead of me at Harvard, and he had gone on ahead. He was from Chicago, so that's how I wind up in Illinois. Um, but he was already working for state government in um, Springfield, Illinois, in our so capital. Had, had he studied actual politics? He did. He was in the government department. Right. <laughs> and, um, and we actually met at the Institute of Politics in, in at Harvard. Uh, so he was already working for state government in Springfield, Illinois. So I got married, followed him there. And it just so happened that at that point in time, um, Illinois became... I joke when I sort of talk about this, it became the hotbed, you know, of American feminism, like who thinks about Springfield, Illinois in that way. But indeed it was because we were in the last three years of the campaign to try to get the Equal Rights Amendment to be part of the U.S. Constitution. And Illinois was the only northern industrial state that, you know, had not ratified the ERA at that time. You know, we had marches, the National Organization for Women led a national campaign, and Ellie Smeal, who was then president of NOW, um, took up basically residence in Illinois for almost three years, you know, running this campaign. But at the very end, when it got pretty tense, we had nuns on hunger strikes and people chaining themselves to the doors of the, you know, legislature. So I'm tw- in my 20s. You know, it's pretty heady stuff to be mm. in the middle of in a very small town, by the way, right? So it was easy to all of a sudden find myself in increasingly large um, responsibilities, you know, in, as, as part of the campaign, which was a lot of fun when you're that age. How emotionally involved did you get with it? Oh, very much. You know, one of the secrets to doing this work is um, you make your friends for life through that work. So many of the women that I got to know then are still some of my best girlfriends. Mm. Um, and, you know, you both get emotionally invested in the issues. It's how I learned about issues like domestic violence, how I really learned about violence against women for the first time. I, you know, learned about, you know, what goes on in the workplace, you know, for the first time. And abortion rights I learned about for the first time um, uh, through that. And it's it kind of stayed with me. Was getting involved in activism at that point, one of the triggers that made you decide to go and study law? Law had always been sort of in the back of my mind. But the the problem was, so you're at Harvard, right? You know, and if you're not going to medical school, and you know that when you get to Harvard because you're taking all the medical school courses, and if you're not really wanting to go to business school, then law school was like the default, right? right. You know, because you had to go to professional school because you're at Harvard. So law school was the default, and I resisted that by not going in immediately because I wasn't sure. This kind of detour to state government was a little bit of figuring that out. But I, it was more the state government experience where I really saw the time it was kind of interesting to be involved in public policy. And the, most of the people who, are in, who do public policy in terms of writing legislation and, and being involved in those are lawyers. Um, and it was more that ex, you know, exposure, I think, that convinced me that going to law school would be a sensible thing to do after three years, you know, in Springfield. When you were in law school, what did you have in mind that you would go to? Did you have sort of a sense while you were studying where you wanted to take what you were learning or what you wanted to do as a next step in the world? Well, the first year I didn't, you know, because I'm sort of just starting out, you know, and didn't really know. I had the good fortune after my first year of law school to clerk in a large law firm, which is not common for first-year students. Usually that happens at your second year. But I had I was lucky enough to do that with 
you know, one of the largest, to this day, one of the top litigation law firms in the the U.S., um, and found that I actually really liked being a litigator. And so from there, after that summer, I did spend my second summer working for a a not-for-profit that did, you know, civil rights litigation work. And actually, interestingly, though I also loved that experience, realized that going straight to doing a pro you know, a, a civil rights activist legal career, which I would have thought I would have liked to do, you really need the discipline, I think, as a lawyer to have a real client and the training that you need. So the, the best lawyers that I found who did that kind of activist work were lawyers who had been in private practice first and had honed their skills. So you did do that. You joined Skadden, um, which is a massive law firm. You you joined the Chicago office, but you also kind of framed your work in that firm towards things like chairing the pro bono committee and, you know, taking cases protecting victims of domestic violence. You know, you fought gender discrimination in high school uh, for, you know, high school athletic I programs. Think you're you have really done your homework. <laughs> Wow! Right, you found that. Too. But I mean, all of all of these kind of things. They're, 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 there's a common theme here, isn't there, Tina? Well, you know, I have to give the firm a lot of credit. During all of this time, I mean, presumably you were working super hard, right? I mean, right. This yeah. is the, the, the hours big, that you have to right. put into these kind of jobs are, are famously epic, right? How are you sort of balancing that with the rest of your life, with your family life? Uh, well, not easy, you know, um, um, but the other advantage, quite frankly, to being in a large law firm is there were a lot of resources. Um, I used to watch some of my friends who were in smaller law firms um, not really have that much easier of a time. Now, so I was a litigator and a trial lawyer, and quite frankly, the work that you have to do to go to, go to trial isn't really different in a large law firm than a small law firm, except that if you're at a large law firm, I don't have to put my witness files together myself. You know, I don't have to go searching through the documents myself mm-hmm. for things that I, exhibits that I need. You know, I do have little armies of associates and paralegals and others. You know, I quite frankly, being at a place like Scatton gave me better resources to manage, even though the workload was very high, to manage the workload. So your son, Patrick, was born during this period, right? He was. I was an associate when he was born in 1988. How did you you deal with that? Did you take maternity leave? Did you take a a bunch of time off? Did you... You know, so back then, three months had become kind of the standard for law firms. Law firms kind of got ahead of the game, um, in part because law students kept asking for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had three months off. Um, It was very confirming because I was pretty much tearing my hair out by the end of the three months. I realized, actually, that it really was not good staying home all day long. And it was reaffirming to me, even though I still did weep, you know, down, driving down Lakeshore Drive to go downtown on the first day back at work. You know, there's, mm-hmm. I don't know what the hormones or whatever, but it was it, it was hard to, to, to leave him that first day. But I had wonderful, you know, um, uh, babysitter who came in, you know, nanny, you know, and she stayed with me. Um, until I moved to DC, um, so you know she was you know in his life you know the entire time, and then when I adopted his um, sister Emma, you know I hired a second person you know who also moved with us to DC and stayed with me until Emma graduated from high school. So tell me about Emma. How did she come into your life? 
I remember sitting at my kitchen table and reading this front page story in the newspaper about a couple from Chicago who had gone to adopt, you know, in China. And it was very new, you know, and it's, and then it was the whole, it was the first time I learned about this whole phenomenon of these baby girls in China because of the one child policy and because of the cultural affinity in China for sons over daughters that there were these abandoned girls. And it really sort of spoke to me. You know, Patrick at the time was the only child of divorced parents, Mm -hmm. the only grandchild of his paternal grandmother. You know, it was very, (laughs) he was living the life of a single, that that kind of life, right? And I thought, yeah, he could really use a sibling. And I would, you know, I was, you know, I had the means to do it. You know, I've often sometimes thought if the article was about Bolivian baby boys, maybe not, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was about Chinese baby girls, which could have been me at, you know, at, at a different time. So it really spoke to me. And I started the process. I used to do it th- when I was thinking about it. All of a sudden, after that article, I started to see people like I, I remember seeing somebody on a street corner in an airport and in a grocery store, total strangers, but, you know, Caucasian people carrying Chinese, Chinese girls. And you knew all of a sudden and I would stop them. And in that really at that time, it was such a novelty. People would willingly tell their story and what agency they'd gone through and what the process was. Um, So I actually learned about the process through those kind of random encounters and people who were really enthusiastic about it and and then learned about the process there and eventually went through the whole thing. So how did you meet the Obamas? Don't know. Don't remember. I mean, really, the three of us have tried. I've tried, you know, when... I didn't realize I would have to have like an origin story <laughs> when I first, you know, I got, can't be the first person to ask. No, I mean when I first got the this the job, you know, that was announced for the White House, um, I learned that this would be the question I would get asked a lot. So I kept trying to figure it out, and I actually do not remember. Um, it's long enough ago that I, I don't recall. Um, I, I suspect it was, you know, in Chicago. When you do progressive democratic politics, although it's a big city, that world is, is kind of small. Everybody mm-hmm. tends to know each other. And I think we we all got to know each other through that. And I was always a supporter of his campaigns. And then I was also on the board of the University of Chicago Medical Center when Michelle was working there. So we had a lot of connections over the years. And what was, what was that early friendship like? Did you sort of have a sense that, that this guy was someone to watch sort of oh, yeah. back then? No, he... You know, Barack was very impressive from the very beginning. And I recall, you know, when he when he ran for U.S. Senate, when he first appeared on the national scene, um, I remember, you know, actually setting up um, introductions for him to my partners in New York. This is when he's just starting to run for the U.S. Senate. So this is very early on. And I said, you know, you should pay attention to him because, you know, this guy could be our first African-American president. Was the White House always a goal for him? I don't know. I think he, and and he certainly has talked in the past, as has you know Mrs. Obama, about the decision making process. You know, in sort of oh seven, you know, oh six, leading up to oh seven, um, about why then and why you know what was going on in the country and why it was sort of was the right time. So you know, I don't know that that became a serious thought. You know, until probably you know that period of time, right, and then leading into. You know, what do you do next at the end of the George Bush, you know, term? So when they asked you to go to D.C. with them, was it a no-brainer for you? Did you did you have your bags packed straight away or did you have to think about it? No, when the President of the United States asks you to go work at the White House, it's kind of a, no, it's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, really, seriously, I mean, it was not anything I had sought, but when that opportunity presents itself. But it was hard, you know, I'm... 
had this great job, you know, and, and, you know, we had a great community in Chicago. We were very deeply rooted there, you know. My last day at Skadden was the Friday before the inauguration. And so what was that like, you know, swiping your security card through? Oh, no, 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 no. There was no security card on the first day. Oh, no? Oh, this was, like, this was like a whole other story. (laughs) So, you know, there was no swiping of any cards um, because on the first day I arrived, I go to the gate I'm supposed to. The guy has no idea. Um, I have since learned that that is the gate that cars go through, not pedestrians. But he was actually took pity on me, and he lets me into his little, it's really cold, it's January, into his, his security hut and tries to call the Joint Operations Center to find out. And the guy on the other end can hear me in the security hut. He's like, is she in there with you? And he's like, yeah, it's cold, you know, so I let her in. And um, he, I subsequently saw him every day when I was at, you know, for eight years. Um, and then he sends me to second gate. Well, that's not the same gate either. And I go to a third gate, which finally lets me in after three hours. So this is a three-hour exercise to try to get into the building. And I'm, like, late, right, for my first day at work. Um, on day two, I go to the gate that had been the right gate the first day. And it, it is no, no longer, longer the right, right gate. <laughs> it's no longer the right gate. They send me to a second gate. So at least on day two, we were down to two gates instead of three gates. Finally, on the third day... That is the gate, right? The gate I went through on day two is the gate we're all supposed to go to. But there are literally 30, 40 of us waiting at that third gate to try to get in and clear in one at a time into the building. You know, so after about four or five days, it's, we all started to then get our badges and be able to sweep in. But at, at any point, did you just want to, like, call your friend Barack on his cell phone and say? Well, I told I did tell him the story when I saw him the first day <laughs> because I went that the, the end of that first day. I, I do remember um, running into him. He was I was actually on this little staircase. I was on the second floor of the West Wing, sort of above the Oval Office, and it was at the end of the day, and Valerie's office, Jared's, Valerie Jarrett's office is next door to me, and I'm going in to see Valerie, and he's coming up the stairs going in, and he says, like, so is this your first day? I said, yeah. He says, we'll come down to the Oval. So we go down to the Oval, and there is this, I have this wonderful memory of Valerie and me and Brock and Michelle just in that Oval Office on that first Friday, you know, sort of all of us looking around saying, you know, all right, here we are. <laughs> could you, you know? believe it? No, I, none of us could, really. very beginning of a new administration, you must be so full of things that you want to do. Like there are so many competing agendas that you want to pursue, so many different things that you want to chase down, so many changes that you probably want to make. How did you prioritise how to do things? How did you actually sort of figure out what was going to happen first, next, then, after that? You know, during... The transition, one of the things the transition teams did and the team that would become my staff on public engagement did was to do meetings with all the different groups. Um, And, you know, there were so many of these groups, the women's groups included, who said, oh, we haven't even been in the White House in eight years. Um, And the women's groups actually wanted the um, reestablishment of the White House policy that had been created under the Clinton administration. And some of the women's groups actually wanted us to have a 
Department on Women and have a cabinet secretary, uh, which would have taken an act of Congress. And so that was a bit of a heavy lift. After looking at it, we actually decided not to create a separate policy office, but to, in fact, create this council, which would have all of the cabinet secretaries as members, all of the White House policy office, domestic policy, national security policy, economic policy as members, um, with Valerie as the chair, myself as the executive director, because we wanted every part of the federal government to take ownership of the issue. And we felt that even if you had a cabinet minister, for example, that if we were talking about women in the military, the Defense Department would look down at the end of the cabinet table and say, well, not my problem, it's their problem. But in fact, it should be their problem. And that was the idea. Well, it enabled you to embed these issues into every facet of policy. Absolutely. And we were very careful, especially towards the end in the last couple of years, of making sure that career civil servants, in addition to the political appointees, were involved so that when we left... Um, and the political appointees were gone, that there were actually career staff who, to this day, I think, continue to pursue a lot of these initiatives. Mm. You also worked as Chief of Staff for Michelle Obama for for years. Was that as fun as I think it was? Oh, it was. I mean, all of it was fun, right? You know, I mean, my two years at public engagement and then my six years in her office. um, So it was all fun. Um, But, you know, in the East Wing, you know, so the president is famously in the West Wing. The East Wing on the other side of the building is where the First Lady's office is. But the East Wing, you know, is a, you know, has the luxury, quite frankly, of being able to set our agenda. You know, we're not subject to the whiplash of, you know, everyday events, right? A crisis here, a hurricane there that, you know, people in the West Wing doing policy have to deal with. And, you know, Mrs. Obama was really clear that there's only one person in this building elected and everything we do really needs to help advance that agenda or why are we doing it, right? Why are we spending time? So each of our initiatives were very deliberately planned that way, but we had the ability to plan them and then focus our attention on the initiatives that we developed without having to, you know, deal with an economic crisis or deal with something else along the way that my colleagues in the West Wing, you know, had to do. Um, so that gave us, you know, and actually it helped me as um, as a mom because most of the time, you know, my schedule was a little bit more predictable than, you know, my, my colleagues, for example, in the National Security right, you know, Council yeah. who are, you know, there's something responsive. happening somewhere in the world at all hours of the day, mm. right? Michelle Obama, you know, utilised the spotlight that being First Lady shone on her really well to pursue interests, things like childhood obesity and, 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 you know, kind of family-related things. Why were those areas ones that she chose? Was that something to do with the fact that, you know, for a first lady having a kind of family thing, she was a mum herself... But did that did that make it sort of more palatable for her to be championing those things? No, it was we didn't think of it in that in those terms. And and actually thinking about what initiatives to do and how to do them is actually a, a fairly difficult process, okay. you know, because when you can do anything, you know, boiling the ocean down to figuring out what what and you have to hit this sweet spot of something that is defined enough you know, to make an impact, but big enough to be worthy of the platform of the First Lady of the United States. So it's not that easy. But we, the two watchwords were, as I said, number one, what will help advance the president's agenda? Because this is all about his agenda. He's the elected person in the building. And number two, what was authentic to her? It really had to be something that she felt she could honestly speak to.
So you had this sort of extraordinary eight years in the White House and, and you know, I'm sure there were frustrations as, as well. There were, there were major events that happened in that time, major bills passed, including marriage equality and various other mm-hmm. pretty transformative bills, really. Right. And then um, it all ended. <laughs> well, elections happen in a democracy. Right. I mean, I guess that election was shocking for everybody, but it must have hit particularly hard for you that had been in the White House. It did. I mean, none of us believed it. Obviously, that night, like most of America, you know, we were pretty stunned. You know, and the next day, I mean, this has been publicly reported on in the past, you know, the next day was really hard. I knew that night we were going to need a staff meeting. And I remember, you know, emailing my deputy chief of staff saying, you know, we got to get a staff meeting out at 10 o'clock. And I did that with our team. And then Mrs. Obama came down in the afternoon as well. And the president spoke in the Rose Garden um, to all the staff. But, you know, a lot of my staff were really young. You know, Mm -hmm. these were people who actually for their adult life only known Barack Obama as president. You know, we'd been in office for eight years. And so they'd never experienced what it was like, you know, to not have that. Um, Many, you know, especially, you know, my staff who are people of color were really terrified by the rhetoric. You know, um, many of my staff were either immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants and were really terrified about what would happen. So it was was a pretty hard day um, and very painful, you know, I think for everybody all around. And as it's panned out with, you know, a lot of the stuff that you did either being unravelled or, or under threat of being unravelled. How do you see your legacy as kind of maintaining? You know, a lot of progress is two steps forward, one step back. I always sort of remember, you know, so for example, when we ran for office in 2008, you know, there was a big debate about whether there should be any kind of affordable health care for people in the United States. It's really shocking. I know every time I come to a place like Australia for you to understand that, no, really, we don't have universal health care. And we didn't have anything approaching it at all or even a program for it back in 08. At least now we have the Affordable Care Act. And although there's been chipping away, obviously, in, at the Affordable Care Act, they're not repealing it. Mm. And in fact, even the rhetoric from the other side is not about let's go back to a period of time which existed in 2007 when we didn't believe there was even a need to create an affordable health insurance program in this country. Um, There is now pretty much recognition across the board on both sides of the aisle that you need to have something. It's just a question of what's the shape of it. Well, that's how you make progress. You know, what happened with LGBT rights, extraordinary, and has not dialed mm. back, which is gays couldn't serve openly in the military. You know, we, we had, you know, federal law that did not recognize gay marriage. You know, really, the idea that we could have changed all that, especially, you know, the service in the military was the first piece, seemed extraordinarily hard. We were in two wars at the time. Um, but the president was very steady in his leadership, and... I also give a lot of credit to our military leadership Mm -hmm. who, once President Obama gave them the time, you know, we did this extensive study, including a study that involved, you know, a conversation about these issues down to every unit of every branch of the military, even units on deployment. Um, And what came back, I think, was a pretty transformative experience um, to the point where I'm really actually proud to say that when... The current administration tried to undo transgender military service by a tweet. 
it was our military leadership that pushed back. Pushed back yeah. um, that's an extraordinary transformation from where they were in 2007. And that's sort of, you know, the, the individual rules sort of come and go. But it is these cultural shifts in attitude that have remained and, and are appeal. really the transformative piece mm-hmm. of how you move things forward. So one of the things that um, President Trump is known for is um, attitudes towards women, which are hostile or, you know, sub-ideal, shall we say. Do you think that Me Too could have happened in a different administration? I do. I mean, I I actually, well, it may or may not have been triggered by some of what happened with him. You know, it, let's, let's really think about the evolution of sort of times up in Me Too and it. It started, you know, and I give a lot of credit to the New York Times and to Ronan Farrow and the New Yorker with some extraordinary reporting um, that detailed, you know, the allegations of Harvey Weinstein. And mm-hmm. I, what I actually think made a difference was the fact that it started in the entertainment industry. Maybe so. But the, I feel like there was a huge rage, right? There well, there was, was. But so here's the two things that I think are different because there was a huge rage around the, the tape. And he still got elected. Yeah, true. You know, we've had these moments. You know, there was a lot of rage around Anita Hill, which wound up having a lot of women get elected 27 years ago to the Congress. But it didn't have this particular velocity. And I think I attribute the current environment to to two things. One is that it started in the entertainment industry because um, it made a difference when somebody like Ashley Judd was speaking out or America Ferreira or Sarah Jessica Parker, because we are such a celebrity-driven culture. I think that the average person thinks, because we're so celebrity-driven, you know, these women are on our televisions every night. We think they're, they're, they're our girlfriends. Yeah, yeah. We relate to them in a way even as incredibly passionate, articulate as Anita Hill was 26 years ago, we didn't know who she was, right? And we could admire her from a distance, but it wasn't like my girlfriend having experienced. But you saw this, you know, celebrity who's courageously speaking out, and all of a sudden, you know, you actually hear it differently and you relate it because it is like somebody you know having this experience. And then the second phenomenon, which is also different than 27 years ago, is, is social media. Yeah. Because, 20, you know, 27 years ago, you, this happened to you with Anita Hill, and what would you do? you tell 10 friends it wouldn't go anyplace else. But here with hashtag MeToo that Tarana Burke had started years earlier, that hashtag getting picked up allowed you then to speak your truth. And then all of a sudden millions of people seeing it, and that then led to other people being able to speak their truth. And there was a community of support that was quite extensive that would not have previously existed. And I think it's the, to me, those are the two things that have caused this sort of extraordinary momentum that it's very different than similar moments in our past. Mm. And one of the things that you and your collaborators have done with Time's Up um, and particularly the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which you have founded is acknowledge that uh, in fact, the people that are most vulnerable to a lot of the kind of assault and harassment that Me Too has brought to the fore are people who don't necessarily have the resources to, um, you know, carry those lawsuits through, um, support themselves if they lose their jobs as a result of making accusations, those sorts of things. Do you think this is going to transform our culture? I hope so. I mean, I, I have to, again, I give the women of Hollywood a lot of credit. So from the first moment as they were coming together, um, they recognized that they were women of privilege and with a platform. And very early on in our conversations, wanted to do something that would 
benefit women of less means. It not, you know, only the case that women of lower income, part, part of what was happening with Me Too was women were getting sued for defamation mm-hmm. and without resources to defend themselves. And that would have had actually the potential to silence the whole thing, which I do think was some of the objective of those bringing the defamation cases. So providing a defense fund in the traditional sense to actually support those people being sued was the original thought. But then as we started to put it together, we found out that even though under the American system, if you bring an employment-related case, you actually can get your attorney's fees at the end if you win. For low-income women, they can't find attorneys to take their case even with that because their wage recovery is so low. These are not cases of high value even if they win because their wages are so low. So turns out there are thousands of low-income women who are farm workers and hotel housekeeping staff and waitresses who continue to just suffer sexual harassment with no ability to reach a lawyer. The employment lawyers who, you know, would like to take their cases can't actually afford to do it themselves. Quite frankly, the bulk of our cases Mm. have been to make this available. Two-thirds of the you know, over 4,800 people who've come forward in the last year are low income. So we're really proud that it's reaching them. We've actually also given out grants to organizations that work with domestic workers and farm workers to do more outreach so that women who actually aren't, you know, don't have the time in their lives to watch the Golden Globes <laughs> and hear about this, you know, will actually, in a language that they understand, will get information about the fund and be able to reach us. So with all of this happening, when you look to the future, are you optimistic? Actually, I am. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, part of my practice at my law firm at Buckley is, you know, now to actually advise companies on making changes. An idea I came up with through my work at the White House and on working families when I found a lot of companies wanting to make change but not knowing how. Um, so it would sort of predated mm-hmm. all of the, 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 the Me Too and Time's Up. But Me Too and Time's Up have completely changed the receptivity, you know, and the acknowledgement by companies that they need to change. Well, there's a risk now, right? Or there's a huge risk. risk. There's a huge risk that people see an enterprise risk. Um, and that it, it actually is one of the things I think we need to change is to see these issues not simply narrowly as ones of employment law um, and discrimination, but as ones of culture, you know, and changing mm-hmm. overall culture and both to eliminate what it might be an enterprise risk, but also quite frankly, to attract good employees, to attract Mm. and keep good employees, you know, to have diversity of thought, which will lead to better ideas and better decision-making. Well, Tina Chen, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you. Tina Chen joined us for All About Women in 2019. Check out the show notes for the video of her events at the festival. Next week's episode features American author and hip-hop aficionado, Joan Morgan. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Flo Mitchell, Merida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.